Good afternoon. I'm Dr. James Smith Jr. and welcome to the Dr. James Show. If I'm beaming a little more than I typically do or if the dimples are popping more today, it's because I am ecstatic about the guests we have. And I, I know as an interviewer, you're supposed to be non-biased and, and, and reserved, but I'm fighting that. Our, our guest today has played a profound role in my life as a, as a speaker and as an international speaker. Uh, years ago, we met and he's played a role in me traveling to uh, Bangalore, India, uh, Cushing, Malaysia. Uh, it's, it's been an amazing, amazing journey. And I, I wanna read to you his, his, a little part of his bio because he's done some unfathomable, amazing work. His name is Tan Sri Dato Dr. R. Palin. He is a Malaysian educator, academic, social entrepreneur, writer, public speaker, and international advocate. Got more. Pro-Chancellor of the University of Cyber, excuse me, Cyber Jaya. He is director on the board of the University of Malaya, which is the oldest university in Malaysia. He's a member of a committee that advises the King of Malaysia on the pandemic, networks in international education, and he's the chairman of SMRT Holdings, Berhad, and group managing director of Minda Global Berhad. I could go on and on and on. Proud to have this privilege to bring to the Dr. James Show, Dr. Palin. Dr. Palin, how are you, sir? Tan Sri Dato, Dr. Palin. Welcome to the Dr. James Show. Great, great to have you. Great to have Hi, you. Hi, Dr. James. Good afternoon. It's good afternoon here, but it world. is 12 midnight where yeah, you are. It's good morning. I'll be positive because it's 12.01, so it's morning. So it's good morning here in Malaysia. So I'm excited to be on your show and excited to see you after all this time, it, even it, though it's just virtual. It's It's been some time, I think maybe seven years, but when you agreed to come on, like, oh my goodness, my worlds are going to collide. My folks here in the States are going to meet Dr. Palin. So I'm glad, I'm glad that you we're able My to make it. Sir. Let me ask you a quick question to get us started. I want you to complete this sentence. If it weren't for blank, I wouldn't be here today. So is it a person? Is it a situation? Is it the way you were raised? Your call, but complete this sentence. If it weren't for blank, I would not be here today. And tell us a little bit about the, the blank. I, I really think that if it was not for you, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> but I, mean, in terms of I, your, I didn't your even journey. realize that the invite was 12 a.m. Because I'm one of those uh, good husbands who get to bed at 10, a, 10, 10 p.m. right on time. 
uh, you know, just kidding from my part of the world. I just get to bed at 10.30, not for anything else, just to unwind and get into bed. But really, I'm here simply because I was so excited to be on your show. I've seen some of your shows. I think it is tremendous value. And I just thought, look, it will be great to come and meet some folks out here and <laughs> have some fun in the early morning. During the pandemic crisis, you can't go out because most of the shops here close at 8 p.m. So if you can't go out to the shop, well, there's something better to do. Get on the James show. <laughs> Dr. Palin, how about just in general though, your life, your journey, if it wasn't for a blank, your journey would not have been the same because you've done an awful lot, educator, speaker, author, I guess another way of framing it, what contributed greatly to you becoming the person that you became? I think three things, Dr. James. I think one, it's my father who kind of empowered me and let me be who I am. And uh, I, could, I could relate to that very much many years later after I read so much. But at that time, my father would always add this to say, if I went to him and said, dad, do you think I should do this? He would say, uh, most Asian parents would say, do this. Because we come from a hierarchical culture and the society is very much hierarchical and therefore you depend upon the wise advice of people who are older than you. However, my father was different. Uh, he said, look, just follow your heart, do what you like to do, yeah. And I think that kind of empowerment when you were young was amazing, yeah. And I think that gave me the strength to pursue my dreams. Wow. Wow. Number two, mm -hmm. I was born a Hindu by religion, but I went to a Roman Catholic school and the priests who taught me were Jesuit priests from Ireland. And I think they always taught me about the concept of social justice. Mm. And I think that to me was very important. Whatever you do, whatever you do, just do what is right. And I remembered many years later when I went to the Harvard Business School and listened to Professor Clayton Christensen mm. that do not employ what he called as the marginal cost doctrine. Or he said in his famous article, how do you measure your life? He said, do not use this philosophy of justice one time. Because if you use justice one time, that's where your ethics collide. That's where your interests kind of go away. And that's when you get into all kinds of problems. So I realized the concept of social justice in whatever you do is important. So today, if I'm in business, I strongly believe that it's because business can do some good to society. If I'm in education, I strongly believe that we can lift thousands and thousands of young kids out of poverty. We could give them access to quality education. In other words, equitable access. Mm. The last thing, the third thing that I must say is my mother 
only speaks one language, which is Tamil. Uh, she doesn't speak any language. She was only 45 years old when my father died. Wow. There was no breadwinners in the family. But my mother knew one another language beyond her native tongue, which was determination. Ooh. That determination was to put every kid of hers into graduate school. And that's why today we are. So today, if I'm here, it's because of that empowerment my father gave me, the determination that my mother taught me, and the principles of social justice those Irish Jesuit priests taught me. I hope I answered that. You topic. did. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm going to ask you to tell me a little bit more about your background, upbringing, but we're going to show a video clip of you sharing that story with wow. The audience. Let's take a look. <laughs> father um, and an Indian mother. I grew up in different countries, studied in different countries, uh, so quite didn't quite know where I belonged to, and that's why I said I'm an outsider. My children have no problem. They say I'm not a Malaysian because I don't eat durians. <laughs> I'm not an Indian by any stretch of an imagination because I speak no Hindi or I do not follow cricket. Uh, they say, uh, you are certainly no American in spite of the number of years you've spent in America because you don't even quite come close to Uncle Scott. <laughs> so I said, what do you think I am? Do you think I have an eclectic upbringing? Didn't quite understand the word what eclectic means, but according to my children, they say that simply means you're a mixed up kid. <laughs> but you know, when you're a mixed up kid, it gives you diverse experiences, and that's the diversity that I had. And I used the diversity of experiences to try and figure out how from... Awesome, awesome. Thank you. Wow, for... where did you get that? That was ages ago. Yeah, it was we, we we do our research. We and we have we have people all over the place, and we Thank like you. to tell your story, our guest story. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that background and and what led you to come to the states, education, Harvard, Harvard Business School. I mean, your mom pushed you, your dad pushed you. Who is Tan? Three, Dotto, Dr. Palin, and as you're finishing up your 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 answer, I want to talk more about the titles, the Tan, Sri, Dotto, because I don't believe a lot of people in the United States know what they mean. I certainly did not know until I met you. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Dr. James. Well. It's uh, those, those of you who follow the British hierarchical society, you would probably know that you have a sir, you have a lord, and you have the commander of the British Empire and the order of the British Empire. So there are honorific titles awarded by the King of Malaysia for your contributions. Uh, the Dato is the first level civil award that they give, which kind of, uh, translates to respected excellency or something like that and Tansri is the highest civilian award the king of Malaysia gives and it's probably equivalent to something like sir and it's restricted to about 355 
Mm. Uh, people, yeah, so 355 people or so. So I think it's more of a recognition of what some people have done. So there are sports personalities, there are government servants, there are charitable philanthropists. So that's primarily what it is. But my name is Pala, yeah. That's <laughs> and and, and what, what moved you to uh, come to the States to study? Was that part of the determination your mom instilled and you, your father, the drive to follow your heart? Well, maybe I should tell you a little story. I, I wanted to be a medical doctor. But, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't kind of, I just missed it out by one or two grade, one or two marks or the grades is whatever they call that. I think that particular year they chose up to the 87th percentile or 90th percentile. I was one shot. So I decided to go and become a film actor. So I tried to be a film actor, uh, but then I, I, I thought that the journey was hardest, uh, stressful, but that was something that I wanted to do. So what I did was I thought that in order to be creative and expressive, I wanted to do something close to psychology. And that's where my studies took me. But you know, America has the leadership of the free world and America has the Ivy League institutions and it set the standards. So to any young man who wanted to be the best that the person can be, you wanted to go and compete with the best. And therefore I said, I will go out and compete with the best. And that's what happens when you go to the National Speakers Association. I see your CSP yes. right there. You're the certified speaking professional, which is the highest earned award for a speaker. And when I went to the National Speakers Association of uh, America, I was kind of stunned with the enormity of talent. I was uh, flabbergasted with how many qualified, talented people were there. So it's about being the best you can be. So to me, if I wanted to primarily be the best that I wanted to be, in order for me to come back and contribute to society, which I'm a strong believer. I thought Harvard School education would be very good. I subsequently went on to Federation of, uh, Federation University in Ballarat, Australia to do a PhD as well. So I think the whole idea is when I started out and I got out at that particular moment, uh, the economy was uh, in a kind of a difficult situation so I, re I realized that I needed to go and do what I enjoy doing. So I wanted to be creative. I wanted to share. I wanted to help people learn. So I went into the job of teaching. So teaching took me on to training and training took me on to consulting. And then I just said, hey, look, I couldn't find non-linear income. I needed to be in front of an audience all the time. And therefore I said, okay, let me write a book and share some ideas. And the first time that I wrote my first book, The Magic of Making Training Fun, I wrote it in long hand and I had to write that 16 times. But then I learned and I learned from friends in the United States of America who taught me how to write a book.
and I went on to get on there. And subsequently, I wanted to do what Robert Kiyosaki said, employed, self-employed business, and then you go into a system, the fourth quadrant. And the only reason that I wanted to go into the fourth quadrant is I saw so many people in life who could have been much, much better, but it was just because they gave up right before they made it, or some people just kept the journey and went on to become a huge success. And so to me, I thought it'd be wonderful if we could actually touch people's lives. And that was my whole journey. That's my whole passion. And I always believe that you need to, you need to understand that life can only be, uh, life can only be understood backwards, but it has to be lived forwards. Yeah. And that that same philosophy it appears as though you're doing using with your your two sons because they they attend or have attended major <laughs> universities in the states. Correct. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I think the younger one went to Stanford and the elder one went to Imperial London. Yeah, because I strongly believe like what Harvard professor Raj Chetty says, that intergenerational mobility is very important. And I think education is the lever to lift the masses of people out from the labyrinth of poverty of stress. And I think that's where social justice comes. In that sense, I really strongly believe that what is happening in the United States today, I'm a great supporter of that initiative. Uh, I'm a great supporter in Malaysia. I'm a great supporter in India of uh, positive affirmation policies, social affirmation policies, whatever way you need to call it, because you need to help the disadvantage to get that intergenerational mobility. And in the United States of America, now they got the 110 initiative, which is led by some key CEOs from American Express and the retiring CEO of Pfizer, Frazier. They are going to be employing 1 million black youth over a period of 10 years without a college degree, giving them decent living wages so that they can be restored to some kind of a lifestyle. So I believe that education, as Dr. Rajchetty from Harvard said, is what gives you that intergenerational mobility. But of course, there are other factors. It depends where you live, whether you live in Philadelphia or Los Angeles. Obviously, there are many factors in his research, but I strongly believe at a very macro level, education is a powerful lever. Absolutely. I'm going to stay with that theme and go to the chat room. I see we have a question. The question is, Dr. Palin, in your opinion, what could the United States know more of regarding international studies and international academics? Again, in your opinion, what could the United States know more of regarding international studies and international academics? Yeah, and I, I think the most important thing that I've always uh, had a, um, a dissatisfaction is that uh, I think it's important to realize there's another world outside there. <laughs> plain, plain and simple, plain and yeah. simple. Yeah, right? yeah, it's another world outside there. And I think it's important to realize that people think different, cultures are very different. Uh, and sometimes, you know, uh, we have a situation like you have a gun explosion or something like that. And uh, 
people in Asia are just wondering why can't we have some more restrictions on gun control? But someone in the United States would be very persuasive to argue another way. But I think the important thing to understand and recognize is there are different views. And I think there is a lot of material out in this part of the world, not just Asia, it's in Africa, it's in South America, it's in Europe. But the key is we have not been able to codify that knowledge much better. And I think one of the things that we have all learned from the United States of America and the UK is to codify that knowledge so that there is a documentation. But if you actually come into the, uh, the, the sacred texts or the old mythologies in this part of the world, you'll find treasures and treasures of information. And we have found tremendous assistance when we partnered with academics from the West who came and guided that codification of knowledge so that we could grow many, many times. So I think one thing that we need to understand is there is tremendous knowledge, but sometimes that knowledge has been tacit, not explicit. And therefore, for an academic from the West, I think there needs to be a little more probing, a little more patience in working with someone from another part of the world. Well, I am thrilled that you had that patience with me. I'm, I was an aspiring speaker. I wanted to travel the world, but they were aspirations. And I remember when we first met, you had traveled to the States. We were in Minneapolis. We were at a conference. I was one of the speakers and you attended, but we didn't actually shake hands or high five or hug, but you took your thoughts about me back home and shortly after that reached out to me to come to Kusheng, Malaysia to speak at one of your big conferences. And then two years later, Kuala Lumpur, two years later, Bangalore, India, and two years later, two years later, back to Kuala Lumpur. And we're showing pictures right now of wow. me oh, yeah. in Kuching, me in Bangalore. Bangalore. And while yeah. we were in Bangalore, I eventually went over and did work in Pune. So yeah. I am, I'm honored that you made the time and had the patience and saw something in this guy who was just aspiring to be an international speaker, you helped make that happen. It's our pleasure. So when I met you in Minneapolis, it is obvious that you were very special and you had a message. And I think that message is very motivating. I think it is what I would call, I would call what Jim Collins wrote in his book, Good to Great, Level Five Leadership. And, uh, you know, I, I, I took this away uh, from that Minneapolis session where you probably had about 400, 500 people. Uh, you did not make anyone feel wherever because there were people from Mexico, there were people from Brazil, there were people from Korea, there were people from Singapore, Malaysia, but you did not make anyone feel out of place. And I think more importantly, I think you were able to relate to one another. But I took away that simple principle where you had a message because it was level five leadership. 
you had a sense of humility, which I think goes very well in most parts of Asia because that's what Gautam Buddha says. Modesty is something to be treasured about. And number two, you had that indomitable will to share something with the audience. You were so particular that everybody takes away something from that audience. And that's something that I learned. And I make sure that in my own life that I'm going to be, I looked at one of your past videos where once that Adam Grant talked about give and take. It's not a great idea to always take, but to give. And to my, in my own life, I, I strongly believe that I want to give. And I saw that that day. And I think most important, you were ambitious. You wanted to travel the world. You were committed, but you were ambitious and committed not for yourself, but in order to spread the message. And that's why I think we fell in love with you. And I came back and told my colleagues that here is this guy. We should bring him out. He's going to be wonderful. Probably going to be a bit expensive because of the dollar. <laughs> at that time. But don't worry, you are just absolutely wonderful. And, 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 uh, and, we, and we worked it out. And yeah, I, I love flying first class. I do. But I love flying first class for 19 hours. <laughs> and you always made sure you flew me out for that long trip, two planes, three planes. But you always made sure I flew first class. And it was a first class experience as we're having as well right now. Tansri Dato, I want to make sure I say that because- no, Just call me Pala and I think that's fine. All right, Pala, because you've earned that. There is a- Another question in the chat room, and it says, if you, I'm sorry, in your view, how can Malaysian educationists, especially someone like you, who have the global views of the world, contribute to the overall values of the global education systems? Very very important because I think one of the aspirations of everyone in the third world, if you allowed everyone uh, in the third world to get to the United States of America, I can promise you, Dr. James, no amount of wall building will stop us. We will cross over the wall and get into America <laughs> because that's the desire. That's the motivation to get in, you know. Uh, because it's the quest, it's the thirst for knowledge. Mm. Uh, I do have a friend who was a president of Laureate and I talked to him, I talk about him in my book. He lives in Arizona and he always talks about this partnering with universities. So if you had a Malaysian university, you partner with a ranked university in America. If you had an Indonesian university, you partner with a ranked university in Europe because most of the universities in this part of the world, not, not all, but some, would, would actually have a financial obstacle to reach the levels of standards which Stanford or Harvard or Wharton or Yale or Rogers would be able to do. 
And it's understandable because we can't commit that money. We can't get that kind of talent, faculty. We can't commit that kind of money to research. But by partnering, we are actually trying to even out the costs and we are able to add on the quality experience that a university like, let's say, the University of Wharton or Yale, or let's say INSEAD, uh, they are able to come and share. And I think the way forward, one of our visions is we want to provide equitable access to quality education. That's what we wanted to, that's our vision. And I think we want to craft the future minds of the world. But to do that, how do I get someone who is uh, probably does not have the right philosophy and has gone wayward. How do I bring him back? The only way I bring him back into mainstream society is by partnering and opening up the mind. I remember I have this, uh, you asked me this question blank, blank very much early <laughs> and it comes back. When I was young and I started my business, and I started my business with a capital in Malaysia, which was 25 ringgit at that time. It was 10 US dollars, which is the cost of a business registration. But I invested two $5 on two posters. One poster was, mines are like parachutes. They only function when they open. So we need to open up. So as an educator, when we partner, or like when a Singaporean kid has you come by to Singapore and teach. Obviously, it's not possible today. That opens up the minds. And second, you asked me a question. What was that made me kind of afford an education that was unaffordable to me? Why do many students create student debt when they really can't because they aspire to what Harvard's Raj Chetty talked about intergenerational mobility. And that was my first poster. And when we grew and we had a huge campus, I went searching for that poster because the new staff had put it away somewhere. I managed to recover it and still have it in my office. It says, when you have a dream, don't let anything dim it. Keep hoping, keep trying, the sky is the limit. And I think we want every child in Asia to hope that they can be the best person they can be. And to do that as an educator, if I can bring the first world education uh, right on site, we can still partner with first world universities. There are opportunities. And I think one thing that I have found academics all over the world with a very minor few, with a very small exception, they're always very happy to go out there and share. Yeah. And even though they might have to deal with change, like many yeah. of us dealt with last year, we yeah. still move forward. Now, I know you speak a lot on change. We're going to show a clip of you talking about change right now. And then I'd love for you to speak more on your, your mindset, your belief around how we should handle change. Sure. Sure. One of the incredible challenges that we face in today's competitive world is the issue of change. We need to change on a regular basis in line with what's happening in the outside world. I think change is both internal and external. 
So one of the solutions that we have found is the use of champions, ambassadors, leadership ambassadors who have tremendous leadership presence, who go out and champion the cause for change, communicating, articulating the pros of the change effort, and just explaining the key issue that if there is no pain, there is no gain. And when there is gain, it's all about the entire university. So the way to move forward, identify who can your champions be, who are your champions, and let's make sure that we communicate to these champions what the message for change is and follow it through so that people can feel the change and ensure the change happens for the benefit of the organization. Thank you. Powerful nuggets, powerful words of wisdom. Continue the story. Well, thank you, Dr. James. I don't know where you find all these videos. Thank you. Yeah, I haven't seen that video. Well, I like myself in that uh, video because I look a lot, lot younger than what <laughs> I <laughs> Nevertheless. You, you said yeah. you, you espouse, be the best, be the best. If the best is coming on, we want to represent him and his views. Thank you. Well. Thank you. Two things. Uh, John Coder at the Harvard Business School, he says, you must feel the sense of urgency to change. And his, and his eight-step model was a very powerful model for me. You know, you create that sense of urgency and you got to execute it through the eight-stage process model. But to me, I've always found while that's very, very true, I have always found that you need ambassadors, you need champions. I don't know very much about American politics uh, other than being inspired by the charisma of some of them because uh, you invented the TV, you invented the social media, and then you make every one of us follow Facebook, <laughs> Instagram, and everything like that. I don't know much about Ronald Reagan's principles, but I do know some things. I don't know very much about John F. Kennedy, but John F. Kennedy was this enigmatic, charismatic, next door young kid who became president. I don't know much about Obama, but we know they're all ambassadors. Now, I just want to, I just want to talk about a couple of things. I talked about social justice a little yes. bit. And I do that in my own way. And I think my Irish Jesuit role model priest, they basically said, son, you must stand up when you need to stand up. Mm. And I realized that many times. And I think today uh, the COVID uh, is, is the COVID pandemic crisis is a nightmare. And, and you know, it's just, it's just amazing. It just, it's just crazy that the, what's happening in India, you know, what's happening in uh, uh, Malaysia, what happened in Italy, what happened in Spain and Germany, it's very painful. But I strongly believe that change uh, can only come when, when we can balance all stakeholders. And that's one of the reasons I believe it's not shareholder uh, capitalism. I believe it is stakeholder capitalism. Uh, 
I think it's capitalism is only going to be successful into the future if we can consider the views of all stakeholders rather than just shareholders. And I realized this many years ago in 1960 when I was probably a toddler, was not even speaking, when President John F. Kennedy said these powerful words, if a government cannot save the many who are poor, it cannot save the few who are rich. And every time I get into with policymakers, every time I get with into politicians or business people, I keep saying this, don't forget social objectives, don't forget stakeholder capitalism, and don't forget we cannot save, if you cannot save the many, you cannot save the few. And to me, that was just two lines. Probably, who is John F. Kennedy to me? He's the president of the United States. But as a toddler, two, three-year-old kid, I didn't realize. But that impact as a change champion and ambassador is very powerful. And, you know, you teach so much management and you always talk about this very famous one-minute manager, one-minute praise, one-minute reprimand. And people say praise in public and criticize in private. But Ronald Reagan was one of these charismatic communicators who really influenced change. And he said, there is no limit to the amount of good you can do for people if you don't care who gets the credit. Yeah. You know, that's leadership. To me, a leader as a change agent has to work with people, as Peter Drucker said, and it's Peter Drucker. Uh, Peter Drucker was so powerful and he said, society has invested so much in business, so better business be an engine to create value for society. Otherwise, we're gonna lose it. I was sitting in a Chicago apartment in 2007, if I remember right, didn't know who this guy was. I was listening to Barack Obama. Look, I'm not going to get into the politics, who is good, who is sure, bad, sure. because I think of the three presidents, I think some were Republican, some were Democrat. Uh, but to me, it was very important to listen to a couple of words he said. And that to me was blank, blank, blank that you asked me. He said, in the face of uncertainty, in the face of difficulty, in the face of challenges, I believed in the audacity of hope. And that was a hope, Dr. James, took me to where I am. Today, if I run two public listed corporations and I've got 10,000 uh, st stakeholders and I've got people working for me, and if I could afford a quality of life, it was that audacity of hope when you have a dream, keep hoping, keep trying, the sky is the limit. It was that audacity. So I believe change agents, leaders are change agents, and change agents will have to go out there, identify subsequent change agents, empower them, and get them to do what it takes. And that's level five leadership. Impressive, change. impressive, impressive. Going back to the... Uh chat room there's there's quite a few it's blowing up the first mm -hmm. one do you think the business ethics 
or principles in the US differ much from other parts of the world? If so, how so? Again, do you think the business ethics or principles in the US differ from much other parts of the world? If so, how so? And I'm looking forward to this answer because you are extremely well-traveled, extremely well-traveled. It's a difficult question to answer, but one of the key things that I strongly believe that is the United States of America has set very high standards of governance. Uh, that's, that's the truth, yeah. And I think whether you talk about the FRS, the financial regulations, if you talk about all the accounting rules, all the best practices, of running large corporations. I think America, United States of America has set the standards. Now, the only difference is the 11 great companies that Jim Collins identified, which outperformed the market average, did it with tremendous ethics. Yeah, and I, I think it's proven. I think uh, it's, uh, we might disagree with some of the research approaches, but certainly it's proven that there are some corporations who are very, very ethical. Now, obviously, if you sit down in a Harvard Business School classroom and discuss about Foxconn in China producing uh, parts for Apple products, using child labor, is that ethical? Sure, sure, sure. Now, yeah. to, or if you say, if you, you have completed the New Delhi Metro Rail in India in record time, but just about 35 people died while it was being constructed, is that ethical? From an Indian perspective or from a Chinese perspective, when I do not have meals for the next day, that's acceptable. But from an American standard view, no, it's not acceptable because a life is something to be treasured about. So that's one. Let's move on, number two. The general perception from the other part of the world is most American corporations are so focused on the profit bottom line and not on the triple P. So it's not on the triple. So it's not about the sustainable development goals. It's so much focused on the profit line. So if you take the pharmaceutical industry, which unfortunately today is a savior with the vaccine, but uh, some, we always have this problem, whether they're overcharging, whether it's a cartel. So there is this argument that why can't we be a little more humane Mm. And it's not all about profits because today in India, India is a country with a disparity of income. There are many rich people. There are many, 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 many millions of poor people. There's a big middle class. But every corporation in India has got to set aside 2% of their profits for corporate social responsibility. Wow. Now, is it correct? Maybe it's not correct. It weakens the balance sheet of the corporation, but it's adjusting the sharp angularities of life because if the government cannot save 
the many who are poor, you, you cannot say the few who are rich, and you're going to have a revolution. You had the French Revolution, you had the R Russian Revolution, you had the Tunisian Revolution, you had the Egyptian Revolution, you have the, uh, the Yemeni Revolution. You have revolutions simply because we have just lost the sense of moderation or that balance. So to go back to that question, yes, sometimes we just feel that while American, American regulators have set the standards and American companies have demonstrated good governance, sometimes the philosophy towards a profit is unfortunately skewed. And that's my takeaway. And I think the only way to respond is that it's not it's not who is right but it's what's right. what's right and i think that's why i i hear these words in the united states all the time a bipartisan approach but unfortunately a bipartisan approach always happens when the guy wins and he says let's have a bipartisan and then the other guy comes in <laughs> it doesn't happen but it's about a consensus. And I think the Japanese have done that extremely well. I think to sit down and find a consensus on how to do it better. Extremely, extremely insightful. Uh, I wanna go back to the chat room. Here's a question about change. And then wanna leave the change subject. It says, how do you encourage change when many around you resist it? What is the most powerful tool you have to change people's mindsets to be more open with change. Let me repeat, how do you encourage change when many around you resist it? What is the most powerful tool you have to change those mindsets to get people to be more open to change? I think there were three words there I will take away. How do you encourage? How do you uh, continue to move on when many people resist it? Yes. And what's the most powerful tool you have? Yes. The most powerful tool I have is bring Dr. James Smith and actually influence <laughs> the people, yeah? <laughs> and I think the most powerful tool that we all have is to show them the, the sense of urgency of change. I had a chief executive officer of a port corporation who basically said this to me and he said this to me, all right, if you don't want to change, that's fine. You don't have to change. That's okay. Just be what you are. But everything else around you will change. And when everything else around you changes, you will change for the worst. And when you change for the worst, you become irrelevant and you become totally useless there. And therefore, you've lost any sense of presence in that place. So to me, I think it's about getting that self-realization. But in many ways, I strongly believe that a person needs that internal resolve to change. And for you to have that internal resolve, of course, there are tools available out there. There are some people go out to coaches, to mentors. Some people go out to, they have a significant life experience. I remember someone that I knew, the guy wouldn't stop smoking until the surgeon said, well, if you want to die, continue smoking. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. And the guy stopped, but it's at, to that level that the guy had to go through. Sure. Now, how do you actually 
uh, bring about change when many people are resisting change. That's a tough one. And that's one of the things that many people say in that case, then either you're part of the problem or you're part of the solution and get the right people on the right seat in the bus. If, if you have all the wrong people, you're never going to move forward. And I think it's very, very important that I find myself that I tell, particularly I tell politicians, I say, we need to know how to gracefully ride into the sunset. Uh, uh, Dr. James, you met President Fidel Ramos of the Philippines in Bangalore, yes. India. Yes. And he's very famous for his quote. He says to all politicians, he says, going up Mount Everest is a choice, but coming down is mandatory. <laughs> That's good. That's you good. can't stay there. Yeah. So if you have many people who are resisting, then I think you need to build a team that supports the change process. And I think encouraging change is just what I said in that video clip, you need leadership ambassadors, leadership champions. You need people who take the message out and you need to demonstrate quick wins and show what these quick wins do rather than not otherwise. And I, many years, many, many years ago, I remember listening to this famous Texan motivation speaker, if I'm correct, Zig Ziglar, correct? Yes, 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 Mr. Ziglar. Yeah. And he would say, just exercise every day, 30, 30 minutes, <laughs> every day, 30 minutes. And he said, you will see the difference. And when I was in Harvard Business School, I had this gentleman called Ned Small, who was also on your show sometimes. And he was my fitness instructor. And I said, let's work out every day, one hour. He said, no, 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 no. Five days a week, 30 minutes every day. That's all. I don't want you to do more. Well, and if, you that's, if that's what you're doing, help me understand what's happening in these pictures then. We got some pictures of, I believe. Yeah, you yeah, exactly. Exercise. Exactly. That's so, right. That's so right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Is that you oh, getting man, it in? You got it. You got it. Yeah, you got it. You know, I've got this little Apple smartwatch or whatever, and I try to record the number of uh, hours of exercise and uh, stand up and energy. And I, I learned that from that small 30 minutes every day, five days a week, give your body a rest for two days. And uh, I, I remember what Robin Sharma, the author of the monk uh, who sold this uh, Ferrari or whatever he said, mm -hmm. And he, he always says, look at your digital distractions wow. and make sure your screen time is no more. So I set myself a weekly target for my screen time so that I don't try, I, I try not to exceed it because it's such, it's such an addiction. Yeah. That's awesome. And you don't get to read. Yeah. So I think that's what I would do to encourage change. Little bits, small bits. Don't try. It's like what Alan Lekin who uh, talked about the book, Time Management, a Harvard MBA said, take little uh, bites, little bites, little bites, Swiss bites. Don't try to bite everything. Show the change. But keep biting. Yeah. Keep biting. One of our alumnus uh, who's listening in and watching from Sweden said, so interesting and true that we always need to put ethics into the context of the local society. Thank you, sir. 
Thank you, sir. Thank you. Sir. From, thank from Sweden. Yes. Thank you. Speaking of thank you, I know you've written 16 books and I have one of them right here. When we were in <laughs> Malaysia, you, you gave it to me. It's thank you. Creating Your Own Rainbow. 16 books, your latest book, what's out there? What's in the office? That's a reflections of an entrepreneur. Mm. I thought the best way to do would be reflections of an entrepreneur. Uh, when the pandemic crisis started and we had a full lockdown in March of last year, I had written some essays, I updated them, and I, uh, I found it a very inspiring process myself. Uh, and uh, I have a couple of articles here. It talks about politics, it talks about life experiences, entrepreneurship, education, and the future of work. And uh, I decided to donate all my royalty proceeds to the cause of education charity. Another book that I kind of wrote a few years ago was A Global Journey of an Asian, just kind of describing how tough the journey was, but the process is all right. I remember, uh, I, I, I could never believe that I could ever take my company public, but you know, it's your mind. So when I did go public and I hit the gong or the bell and uh, my shares went public, it was an amazing experience. Here was this guy who talks about social justice but now he's a full-blown capitalist. And I told God, please make me remember that I don't want to forget the principles of social justice. That is, that is great. Time is getting away. I would be remiss if I didn't put you in the hot seat. We do that during the Dr. James show. The hot seat is an activity where, you know, and the trainer is in me, the trainer is in me. It's where I give you a word and yeah. you share the first word that comes to mind without thinking. So it's, oh, right. it, so there, there's no thinking to talk. It's talking to think. And they're okay. coming rapid fire. Palin, you are now in the hot seat. Your first word, hope. Hope, cope. Diversity. Inclusivity. Leadership. Challenges. Education. Lifelong learning. Ambassadors. Champions. Here we go. The last five. Change. Resolve. Palin. Palin? <laughs> nice. Dreams. Aspirations. Dedication. Commitment. Family. Love. You are off the hot seat, off the hot seat. Thank you, sir. Thank you. We're going to put you on another one just that quickly. And this is how we, we wrap up the show. Since I'm a speaker, and of course, I love running my mouth, I asked our guests to do a keynote. But this, wow. this keynote is 30 seconds. We ask you to look right into your camera because this time has flown by. You have dropped nugget after nugget after nugget at pearl after pearl. What's gonna be your parting pearl, your parting words, your parting nuggets? Mic check, mic check, it's working. It's time for you to share your keynote 
your call to action. What do you want us to do as an audience, listening in, watching, going forward? Thank you, Dr. James. Fast forward to 10 years of my life, and if I had an opportunity to reflect on my success and had to answer one important question, what I would be most proud of, the answer would be for the number of things I stood up when I needed to stand up, the number of people I touched when I needed to touch them, and the number of good things that I did when I could do. So what I want you to really remember, ladies and gentlemen, is to stand up when you feel it's time to stand up. Do good when you think you can do good and spread love towards humanity, whoever they are. Thank you, Dr. James, for Ooh. a wonderful time Ooh. Ooh. having me on the show. Thank Mike you. Mike drop, Mike drop. And I, I thank you for seeing something in me all those years ago and giving me an opportunity and, and flying me out to Malaysia to build the relationship that we have. I thank you for bringing me to your home when I was out in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia and spending time with your wife, your daughter, your other family members. And putting up with me being uncomfortable eating with my, my finger, my hand, <laughs> rather than with silverware and taking my shoes off and walking around in my, my bare feet. You have really embraced me, embraced my dreams and created you know, an opportunity for me to dream big um, by just modeling. You live what you give. And Thank you. Mo more of us need to do that. For those of you who are watching, Pearl, nuggets, thoughts, tools, dreams. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you Dr. so James much Joe. for having me. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I hope you realize that now I have earned my right to go to bed. <laughs> Good night, sir. It is one o'clock tonight. And you Good have night. a great day and stay safe and God bless us all. Thank you. Thank yeah, you very God much. God bless us all. We will see you back here next week. We'll have another phenomenal guest. We'll have some more sharing, some more information and transformation. Remember, you've just been impacted. Take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.